Crosspoint Church's weekly sermon audio from lead pastor Brad Evangelista. For more information about Crosspoint, visit InsideCrosspoint.com. Well, yeah, Happy New Year. It's good to see you guys. Uh, our youth uh, group, along with Pastor Will, are up in West Virginia at their annual beginning of the year ski retreat. And right as we were praying before the service uh, in my office, we can meet together and pray for the service and just go over our plan. And Will gave all of the kids my cell phone number, and they all, they all started texting me encouragements for this uh, this morning, one said, don't choke. Another one said, don't mess it up. And the other said something about, make sure you preach the gospel. And a bunch of numbers that I'm not familiar with. So thank you, young people, for your uh, reminders. And, uh, and as Robert prayed, it's really good to have the Todds with us for this last Sunday before they head back to uh, the area that God has called them to. And we do want you to, to love on them, to pray for them. Uh, if you didn't know, Travis is Trisha Jeems, who's a member of this church. He is her brother. And they've been on a little furlough, a short furlough, as Robert mentioned, for the past six months and spending a lot of their time here at Crosspoint and being encouraged. And so we are grateful for you uh, answering the call of God. And we pray uh, that our church would be marked by people. They're not, this isn't their home church. It's not like they were sent out from this church, although we do partner with them. We pray that, that we would have many families like the Todd's that would give their lives away to the service of the gospel in difficult places around the globe or even in difficult places even in our city. And we, we think that's a part of the fruit of the gospel. And so we are, are going to look at that for these next couple, couple weeks. If you're not used to looking up uh, verses in the Bible or, or scriptures in the Bible and you're using the one in front of the Bible in front of you, you can find Acts chapter 19 on page 727 or 928 of those Bibles. We're going to work through all of uh, Acts chapter 19, and I've got four points that I want to draw out as we work through it. And we're going to read and stop, read and stop, and comment and think about uh, the gospel and the effect that it should have on us and how the gospel comes really to disrupt our lives and to confront us and to demolish idols and to demand our worship for our joy. So let me pray, and then uh, we'll spend some time working through this beautiful, uh, incredible scene in Acts chapter 19. Let's pray. Father, as you, as you inspired the psalmist to write Psalm 8, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the nations, above the heavens. Out of the mouth of babies and infants, you have established strength because of your foe to still the enemy and the avenger. When we look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, what is man that you are mindful of him, the son of man that you should care for him? Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and have crowned him with glory and honor. You've given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, all beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, the fish of the sea, and everything that moves along the paths of the sea. 
O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Lord, I pray today as we stare at your word that we would see the majestic beauty of the risen King Jesus and that he would be irresistible and that Christians in this room would be stirred to worship you more passionately and that unbelievers that are here in this room as they came in unbelieving and dead in their sin, that you would give life and a heart to believe so that they would turn from their sin and trust in Christ and be saved. I pray these things for the glory of your name and the joy of your people. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, well, let's read, starting in chapter 19, verse 1. Now, we're going to move quickly through some sections and settle down in some other areas. Starting in verse 1. Now, the point of the book of Acts is the spread of the gospel across the known world at that time. So Jesus has been crucified. He's lived a perfect, sinless life. He's been crucified on the cross, bearing the wrath of God for the sin of all of his people, all those that would turn and trust in him. And he then defeats sin and the death and the grave and is resurrected and appears to his disciples and over 500 people, the end of the Gospels and the beginning of Acts, and then is ascended into heaven where he sits even now, as we read in Romans 8 several weeks ago. Uh, the, the risen victorious king making intercession for his people. And he then commissions his church to take the gospel to all of the known world at that time. And we see in the beginning of Acts that God pours out his spirit on his people, empowers them for witness. He does this in Acts chapter 2. And then the disciples begin to take the gospel to the world. And we see then Paul, who formerly was a persecutor of Christians, by that t- at that time, he was going by the name Saul, and then he becomes a Christian. God confronts him in his unbelief and his uh, persecution of Christians, turns him into a Christian, sends him on a mission, and we see Paul begin to go on these missionary journeys, taking the gospel to the Roman Empire at that time. And in Acts chapter 19, Paul is continuing the advance of the gospel and finds himself in this city, Ephesus, which is a very, very important city in that time, still to this day. A city of great wealth, a city of great cultural influence. It would probably have been the second or third largest city in the Roman Empire at the time. So it was kind of like their Chicago or Los Angeles. It was a cultural epicenter. It was, it was a place where there was much false worship, much idolatry, and it was a place of great influence. And Paul being strategic for the gospel, is taking the gospel and settling down in these major cities and here in Ephesus and preaching the good news of what Christ has done and we'll see turning the city upside down. So verse 1 reads, And it happened that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the inland country and came to Ephesus. There he found some disciples. And he said to them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, No, we have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. And he said, Into what then were you baptized? They said, Into John's baptism. So these disciples were uh, not yet Jesus' disciples, but were disciples of John. And we find ourselves here in a very interesting time where the gospel is spreading, and there's this transition time between the Old Covenant 
and the new covenant. So in verse 4, Paul says, and Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance. Remember that at the beginning of the gospel. John, the cousin of Jesus, is like this last Old Testament prophet that is coming and preaching. In fact, his ministry was foretold in the Old Testament as the one who would come and prepare the way for Jesus. So John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who was to come after him, that is Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Verse 6, and when Paul had laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them and they began speaking in tongues and prophesying. There were about 12 men in all. So let's pause here for just a second. We could spend a lot of time on this, uh, what's going on here, because there are some significant things and some very interesting things in here and some very challenging things to to sort of decipher. I won't spend a whole lot of time on that because I want to get into the rest of the chapter. But let me just mention a couple things about these first seven verses. One is that uh, there's a big debate amongst scholars for, for years as to whether or not these disciples were Christians when Paul happened upon them. It says that they were disciples. They were believing in John's message. They had been baptized into John's message. But it sounds like they hadn't quite yet fully understood or heard about what Jesus has done. And so there's this kind of debate. Were they already Christians? What's going on there? I don't know that it's necessarily profitable for us to spend too much time sort of thinking about that question, although that would be something that would be good to do at another occasion. But I think what's happening here is that this is a time, as I mentioned, of transition between the old covenant and the new covenant, between the news of what Christ has done and how he fulfills the Old Testament that is now spreading across the Roman Empire. So unlike us who have the benefit in this age that we are born of just knowing the first time we hear the completed work of God and the completed message of the gospel, these people are living in a time of transition. And so Jesus is not yet fully known. He's not yet fully preached. The implications of the gospel haven't necessarily reached all of these people. And part of what Paul and the apostles are doing are coming and filling in and completing the message that John has begun. It mentions there that uh, that these men received this baptism of the Holy Spirit and they began to speak with other tongues and prophesy. And some, I think, well-meaning Christians in the Pentecostal stream of the church have looked at this and they found what they believe to be a a sort of personal pattern by which Christians individually should follow. And they look at this and they say, okay, there seems to be this belief before Paul came upon them, so maybe they were already Christians is what they surmise, and then there's this second experience that then is evidenced by the display or manifestation of some spiritual gift. And about 120 years ago, the Christians in the sort of Pentecostal stream of the church developed this understanding of this, of this particular verse and other verses in the book of Acts, specifically Acts chapter 2 and Acts chapter 10 uh, and Acts chapter 8, where there seems to be this, this pouring out of the Holy Spirit on particular people groups. I think, if I could just say very humbly and and generously, that, the, that that view is overly personalizing this text and, and, and I think incorrectly seeing it as a personal pattern for some spiritual experience. I don't think that's what's going on here. In fact, when we see the Holy Spirit falling on a group of people and then a particular spiritual gift marking that experience, 
I think what's happening is, is that God is proving to the early Jewish disciples that the gospel is not just for them, like it fell on them and came to them, that the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit that converts and knits us into and baptizes us into the body of Christ upon our belief in Jesus, that the Holy Spirit that is for God's people, the old covenant Jew, is not just for them, but he's for all peoples, all Gentiles. So in Acts chapter 2, we see the Holy Spirit falling on the Jews. And then in Acts chapter 8, we see the Holy Spirit falling on the Samaritans. And the same thing happening to them. And then in Acts chapter 10, we see the Holy Spirit falling on the Roman centurion uh, Cornelius and his household. And then in Acts chapter 19, we see the gospel falling on these Ephesians. So there's much more that we can say about that. But suffice it to say that I don't think that this is prescribing a sort of personal pattern where you need to seek some second experience that is evidenced by a spiritual gift. Now, I do think that God uses spiritual gifts. In fact, I think that God uh, uses all the spiritual gifts, but I don't think that any of them are particular markers of any spiritual uh, maturity or second stage experience. Well, there's much more that I can say, and I've, I've completely confused people, and I've stirred up sort of the Pentecostal vibe of Crosspoint. Whoever you are sitting out there, and you're wanting to fire off an email telling me that I incorrectly understand this. Hold your horses. Uh, I don't think that uh, that's what's happening there, but, but we can talk more about that over a cup of coffee, should you desire. Just leave your tambourines at home. That's all I ask. I'm sorry. That was, that was a cheap shot. I'm cheap, cheap shot. No, friends, listen to me. Listen to me. Uh, that was unprovoked. I'm feeling feisty. It's the new year. I've been sitting around doing nothing but eating, not exercising. I'm working off some of that. Um, listen, we want to be a church that is uh, just gospel-driven, spirit-fueled, spirit-led. We want all that God has to offer. Um, but... The gospel in Jesus is sufficient, and he baptizes his people into belief, into the body upon conversion, we believe. And he gives his people for service. Well, much more we could say about that. I said too much. Verse 8. All right, let's get into the, to the part of this chapter that is just incredible. Verse 8, in Paul, he entered the synagogue and for three months spoke boldly reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. But when, some, but when some became stubborn and continued in unbelief, speaking evil of the way, notice that the way, that's what they called Christianity early on uh, in the, these early centuries, speaking evil of the way before the congregation, he withdrew from them and took the disciples with him, reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannus. So the hall of Tyrannus was basically just a lecture hall. So Paul has started out preaching and teaching uh, in the synagogue, which was his custom. And then the crowds grew, and so there was some controversy there, and some people were stubborn, and they were unbelieving. And then they weren't just stubborn and unbelieving, but they were beginning to, to try and thwart his his teaching by speaking evil of Christians. And so then he withdrew and rented out this large sort of meeting hall uh, that was probably owned by this man named Tyrannus. So he took the disciples with him, reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannus. Verse 10. Listen to this then. This continued for two years. What continued? Paul's methodical preaching of the gospel and the word of God and all of the implications that came out of it. 
This continued for two years so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. So here's the first point that I want to draw out of this as we work through this chapter. And it is this. It is that the gospel is sufficient. The gospel is sufficient. What do I mean by the gospel here? I think it's helpful for us to define terms. By the gospel, I certainly mean the good work of what God has done in Christ on the cross through his perfect life, his substitutionary death, his victorious resurrection, and his kingly ascension to reconcile people to himself. That's certainly what I'm talking about. The gospel, the good news of what God has done in Christ. But not just that. We're talking about all then, all of the truth, all of the good doctrine, and all of the implications that flow out of Jesus's defeat of death, sin, and the grave, and all of its consequences through his life, death, and resurrection. So by the gospel here in this context, we're not just zeroing in on Christ's atoning work on the cross, although clearly, friends, that is the heart of the gospel, what God has done in Christ to reconcile people for himself. In fact, friends, let's pause there for a second and just make sure that we understand this. Make sure that you hear this on this first Sunday of, of January in 2015. Whether you've been a Christian for many, many years, whether you just became a Christian within the past week, or whether you're not a Christian, the thing that you need to hear most is the good news, the gospel, the explanation of how God makes unbelieving, rebellious sinners, which is everybody, right with him through Jesus' work on the cross. So this is the story of the gospel. God is holy and righteous and beautiful and all good and eternal. And he creates everything that is. That's you and me, every person that's ever lived. He creates this world. And as the pinnacle of his creation, he creates mankind in his image to be his image bearers, to be the stewards over his creation. But we, like our first parents, Adam and Eve, we have all rebelled against God. We have turned aside from Him. We have either through obvious public display of rebellion or through our internal righteousness as just good little moralists have considered ourselves as better than God. And we've turned aside from Him. The Bible calls this sin. And the Bible says that God in His infinite holiness and majesty cannot abide with sin and He rightly separates us from His presence, leaving us dead in our sins. But He does not leave us in that state. God comes to us in the form of His Son, Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, who becomes a man, takes on flesh, lives a perfect life in the flesh where we, like every other human being, has disobeyed God. Jesus completely obeys God and then lays down his perfect life, which is fully God and fully man on the cross. And because he's not just a perfect man, but because he's also an eternally holy God, his sacrifice on the cross is able to bear the wrath of God that we could never bear. In fact, because of Jesus and who he is in his humanity, perfect, and in his, in his holiness, his divinity, eternal, he is able to not just bear it, but to satisfy God's judgment, the, the judgment of the Father against us, and to extinguish it and remove it. 
And because he's God and because he's perfect, God the Father, vindicating, exonerating Jesus because he is completely innocent, raises him from the grave, and he now is alive. He is the risen king, the God-man Jesus, and he commands all people everywhere, every person in this room, from every tribe and tongue and nation, every man, every woman, every boy, every girl, to turn from trusting in themselves, to turn from their sin, which seems pleasing at the moment but ultimately will destroy us, to turn from our own morality, our own righteousness, and to put our hope in what God himself has done to bear his punishment through his son on the cross and in his victory over sin in the grave to turn away from our sin, that's repentance, and to put our faith in him, that's believing in Jesus, and be saved into life eternal with him. Friends, that is the heart of the gospel. That is the message of the Bible. It is the point of the universe, and you must believe it. And then from that good news, then flows implications because Jesus is not just this sort of get out of jail free or this rabbit's foot that we just sort of hang on ourselves for good luck and then we kind of go about living our lives like we were living before we heard about this good news. No, this gospel then demands and defines our lives because Jesus is not just our Savior for a future time. He is the Lord of all of creation and of our very lives because we were dead and now he has made us alive and he's given us a new heart that then beats for him. And so that, friends, is the gospel. And this is what Paul was preaching and teaching in a methodical, patient way. And notice that this message was, it was offensive. It caused some people to be stubborn about it, and it caused hostility. But nevertheless, this gospel that Paul is preaching in Ephesus is sufficient. It's all that we need. For some it will offend and repel, and others it will draw and save. But this good news, this word of God, this message of Jesus, and all of the implications for all of life, and then the Holy Spirit that comes along, the right teaching of God's word, then is all we need. This is the way Martin Luther put it in the early 1500s when he sparked the Protestant Reformation by his, just his preaching and teaching. This is what he said. I love Luther. We don't have it on the screen, but just listen to Luther's words. I simply taught, preached, wrote God's word. Otherwise, I did nothing. And then, while I, was, while I slept or drank Wittenberg beer with my, my friend Philip of Amsdorf, the word so greatly weakened the papacy, meaning the leader of the Church of Rome, that never a prince or an emperor did such damage to it. I did nothing. The Word did it all. Do you hear that? Luther's saying, I just, I just rolled out the Word of God, read it, preached it, taught it, wrote it. And as the Holy Spirit came alongside the Word of God, it brought down the false understanding of the gospel that was... That was constricting the church at that time. 
Friends, what are the implications for us as we read this? Because we go, oh, great, great, yeah, wow, this is really interesting. This happened in Ephesus. Cool quote from Luther back in the 1500s. Okay, what's the next verse? No, friends, this, the gospel is sufficient for us. It's all we need as a church. Have you noticed that every Sunday we open the Bible, we work our way methodically through the Bible. That's what we call expositional preaching. We want to expose ourselves to the word of God. We want the point of every preaching and teaching at Crosspoint to be the word of God. And we want to let it sink and settle in our hearts. And then we want to take a hard right to the cross and we want to lift up Jesus. And then we want to go out and live out its implications Monday through Friday. And then we want to come back in here Sunday and we want to do it again. And then we want to live out its implications. And then we want to come back in here Sunday, every Sunday. And we want to explain the scriptures, see how it points to Christ, all of the implications of the kingship of Jesus. And then we want to do it again. Do you realize that we have one instrument? We have one drum. We have one beat. We have one note. And it is the glory of God in Christ every single Sunday. Have you noticed that? I hope you have. Somebody told me, early on in Crosspoint, and I'm going to come across as a little defensive here, and maybe I am. They said, Brad, I, I don't know about your preaching because it's like you say the same thing every Sunday. And I just went, I thank you, you're right, I do. I wanted to kiss him on the cheek. And that was their criticism of me, and I, I don't think they're here anymore anyway, but... but but we have one drum, one beat, one message. The gospel is enough. We don't need silly stuff. We don't need goofy little programs. We don't need to, we don't need to you know, sing music that will, will, will make people come in in a certain way. We don't need rock walls. We don't need this. We don't need that. We don't need all this little stuff, all these accoutrements, all these ways that we try and dress up and adorn and make the gospel palatable, palatable to an onlooking world. We, we need to settle ourselves on the word of God, the gospel, and all of the truth that flows out of it and we need to believe that it is enough and that that it will that it will do what God has intended it to do and when a church when a church settles on that and, and they see the gospel as having everything they need and when they see the Bible and the Holy Spirit coming alongside the word to actually bear fruit, when that becomes enough for a group of people and they don't try and dress up the message of the Bible and change it every 10 years with the changing culture. Friends, it has a, a wonderfully powerful aroma and God does what he intends to do through his word. Well, let's keep going. Verse 11. So the first thing we see is that the gospel is sufficient. Verse 11. Now it's going to get thick and awesome. This next little paragraph is one of my favorite scenes in the entire Bible. Because somebody gets absolutely drubbed and sent out naked. Oh, it's, we'll see it. It's in the Bible. Verse 11. And God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul so that even handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick and their diseases left them and the evil spirits came out of them. Now, let me say here uh, that this is not a prescription for modern day TV and charlatans to raise money for their ministries. Uh, this is not a pattern. I think what's happening here is not that God is saying that then we should gather together cloths and pray for them as if there's some special anointing on them. But we see, I think, God condescending to the mentality 
of the culture of Ephesus that was dominated by magic and incantations and in a sense speaking on the level of the culture and he is confronting the magic and false idols of the culture with this particular extraordinary miracle of Paul's apron which he would use in the morning when he did his tent making and his headband which was probably a handkerchief that he that he put around his head that had sweat on it that they would tear fragments from this and send this out and God is like he's speaking the level speaking on the level of these people who are so caught up in this this magic type stuff and God is showing how he's even more powerful than that through this particularly extraordinary work through of a miracle through the hands of Paul I don't think that's a prescription that we need to start praying over handkerchiefs and send them out Okay, verse 13. Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists, that's an interesting vocation, isn't it? The itinerant Jewish exorcists undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, listen to this, I adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. Seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Sceva were doing this. Verse 15, but the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know, and Paul I recognize, but uh, who are you? Oh man, talk about awkward. Can you imagine? So there's these seven brothers, seven sons of this high priest named Sceva, trying to jump on the bandwagon here of Paul's extraordinary power in his ministry and trying to get a little bit of cash flow from this. Verse 17. I know, verse 16. Listen to this. And the man in whom was the evil spirit leapt on them, mastered all of them, and overpowered them. This is one on seven. So that they fled out of that house naked and wounded. All right, now, I had a big brother that sort of defended my little smart mouth when I was a little kid, and so I didn't get in many scrapes, you know, just kind of these little shoving matches you get in the schoolyard. Uh, but in my freshman year of college, it was mandatory for us to take boxing as a class. And so I've had a few boxing matches, won a few, lost a few. They were all basically pretty close. But there was this one time, this, <laughs> this little Italian kid from the Bronx, and I was hoping that he would sense a shared heritage that he and I had and that he would take mercy on me like, man, I'm a paisan. Come on, bro. This kid whooped my tail. You do not know how long a three-minute round can be. Three three-minute rounds. It was, in, it was the longest nine minutes of my life. But, but at the end of the third round, at least I still had my pants on, right? I mean, how bad do you have to get whooped that you get sent out like naked? And then look at the effect that this had. Wouldn't you think that this then would sort of testify of the power of the demon? Wouldn't that sort of be your natural inclination? 
But actually look at it. It had another effect. Verse 17. And this became this scene where this one man, possessed by this demon, whooped these seven sons of Sceva. And this became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks, and fear fell upon them all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. Not the name of the demon, the name of Jesus was extolled. And also, verse 18, many of those who were now believers came, and listen to what it, the effect that it had on those who were believers, but who were still struggling with sin and giving in to idols, So many of those who were now believers came confessing and divulging their practices. And a number of those who had practiced magic magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted the value of them and found it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. Now that's significant. There's some debate as to exactly what Luke, who's the author of Acts, meant when he said 50,000 pieces of silver. It if on the lower end, it, if you added up these 50,000 pieces, depending on what he meant there, it was several hundred thousands of dollars, the equivalent for today's money. And if you look at the higher end of, of what he potentially meant by the, this piece of silver, 50,000, it could have potentially been as up to as much as $6 million that was burned as people began to fear and extol and lift up the name of Jesus. Verse 20. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. So that brings us to the second thing that I want us to see in this chapter is not only is the gospel sufficient, but the gospel clarifies. Notice the effect that this encounter had. This contrast. Paul's not even involved. Paul's not there like officiating this beat down. This is just the seven sons of Sceva trying to, you know, jump on the gospel bandwagon and get sort of their own benefit from it without really believing. And they were exposed for their falseness and their idolatry. So the effect of this incredible scene is not the fear of demons, but the fear of God. So friends, notice this, that when the gospel, when a, when a group of people, when a group of people begin to believe and see the reality of who Jesus is and his lordship on their life, it humbles them, it sobers them up. It's like ammonia that you smell when you're, when you're sort of woozy and it, and it clarifies for you who Jesus truly is and it And it makes you realize, oh my gosh, I I really need to serve the true and risen God because there's all this false junk going on out here. And when a group of people takes Jesus serious, it will confront the world and it will expose imposters and it will cause people who are nominally claiming to be believers to be chastened in their growth in Christ and to bring all of their practices, all of their areas, to confess their sin, to finally be honest with one another and to seek to burn up the areas of their life that are contrary to God. Oh, that, that, that cross point would be a sort of burn pile of sin. Now, I don't think any of you have any magic books that you need to be burning. Maybe you do. Maybe you got a Ouija board stored somewhere in your closet. You need to burn that joker. 
But maybe some of you men have a cache of pornography on your computer. Or, or maybe you've got some area of your heart that's not yielded to God and, and, and you're, you're like these people that are in verse 17 and 18 that they, they, they realize that when the gospel is clarified, when it's taken serious and Jesus isn't just some little rabbit's foot, but he's the king who demands allegiance and worship for our joy. It produces in us repentance and we start to burn up and repent of and turn away from all of these little things that we've sort of allowed to creep into our lives. May Crosspoint, may every gospel preaching church in Columbus and in this country and in this world be a burn pit for our sin. And would this be the type of place where we can actually bring our stuff to burn, not hide it from one another in religious hypocrisy? Can we be the type of place where it's okay to bring your stuff and have it burn so that Jesus would be clarified and we would be gracious to one another? Because listen here, friends, we've all got stuff still in our heart that needs to go to the burn pile of the gospel, don't we? I'll say amen for all of you. Amen. The gospel clarifies the holiness of Jesus and the impact that it should have on his people who are serious stands out as a stark contrast against a world that is awash in idolatry and syncretism and sin. And here's the natural inclination of our heart, isn't it? This is my heart. When I see somebody that's really getting serious about God and the gospel, I look for ways to see that they're really being legalistic. Or just any group of people that are taking the gospel serious. Ah, oh, well, you know, they don't, they don't, they, 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 you know, they're really legalistic. You've got to memorize scripture. Don't you do that? Isn't that? What does that say about our hearts? That when people are starting to take the gospel seriously, we want to instantly sort of push it away. Oh, that, that we would not be like that. That we would be people that bring, that are continually repenting. And bringing our junk to the burn pile of the gospel. The gospel clarifies. Well, let's keep going. Verse 21. Let's move quickly. Now, after these events, Paul resolved in the spirit to pass through Macedonia and Achaia and go to Jerusalem, saying, after I have been there, I must also see Rome. So he intends to leave. Verse 22. And having, and having sent into Macedonia two of his helpers, Timothy and Erastus, he himself stayed in Asia for a while. And as he stays then, some really incredible riot happens. Verse 23. About that time there arose no little disturbance concerning the way. It's an interesting way of putting what happens next. For a man named Demetrius, a silversmith, who made silver shrines of Artemis, it's this female goddess, also the same, the Greek goddess Diana, the same same person, same false god. So he's making these little figurines, these little bobbleheads of the false goddess Diana, Artemis. He brought no little business to the craftsmen. Verse 25. These he gathered together with the workmen in similar trades and said, Men, you know that from this business we have our wealth. And you see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, 
this Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people, saying, listen to this sentence, saying that gods made with hands are not gods. Right, Demetrius. Right. Gods made with hands are not gods. Verse 27. And there is danger, not only that this trade of ours may come into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing, and that she may even be deposed from her magnificence, she whom all Asia and the world worship. So that brings us to point number three here, which just jumps off the page. I think it's the heart of this chapter, is that the gospel disrupts and confronts. And it doesn't just confront a pagan city in Ephesus 2,000 years ago. It is intended to confront every culture, every city, every generation, and every individual heart that it ever hits. My heart, your heart, the heart that grew up in a good Baptist or Methodist or Presbyterian church in the deep south, the gospel comes to disrupt and to confront. But friends, let's confess that we live in a nominal, watered-down culture that sees the good news of the gospel as a sweetener that we add to our lives like cream in a coffee. It makes life more palatable or successful or whatever. Friends, that is false. No, the gospel is a freight train of God's supremacy that comes to collide with our lives and demolish our idols and rebuild our affections and reorient them on Christ, the only thing that will truly satisfy and bring us joy. So friends, again, I doubt that any of you are silversmiths or craftsmen that are fashioning little idols of culture and selling them as things to be worshipped. But aren't we all sort of prone to worship our own little idols? Again, by idols, we're not talking about a little golden statue of a goddess. We're talking about these things that that make us feel like we are okay and right and sufficient. Idols of success, idols of financial gain, idols of beauty, idols of whatever, idols of cleanliness in your home, idols of... I think there's a, I think there's a special desire... I think there's a special idol in our culture of interior design. I, I know I harp on this a lot... It's me, I mean, I'm, I'm the same way. We just, we want everything to look good. We want our houses to be perfect. We want, we want our houses to look like Pinterest. Now, I don't even know if I'm saying that right. Pin, Pinterest, Etsy, whatever these neat little sites are. And listen, I like them too. I mean, I, I look at them, oh, that'd be cool to have. And, and when you don't have all this cool stuff and everybody else has all this cool stuff, it's like we're worshiping gods that are made by hands. Because we're judging our happiness. We're, we're putting our happiness in these things that are not gods. We're, we're pursuing. We're, maybe there's a businessman in this church who is, who is, who is crossing barriers and 
and, and cutting corners just to, to make money so that he will, he will get ahead. Listen, dear brother, can I say to you that, that you are, are just like these craftsmen in Acts 19 who, who, are, who are just prostituting out your own heart for the sake of your own gain instead of worshiping the only thing that will truly satisfy. Maybe there's a, a young woman or a, a, a lady in this, this church who's, who's, whose heart will not be satisfied unless she gets the affections of a young man or unless she looks a certain way or whatever. Do you realize, dear sister, that, that, that you, you, you are worshiping a God, a false God, a lowercase g made with hands, and it will ultimately perish. And the only thing that will truly satisfy is Christ and the gospel not, must not come and be added to our lives like a, a rabbit's foot or a sweetener, but it needs to be a freight train of God's supremacy that comes to collide with our lives and demolish our idols and rebuild our affections and reorient them on Christ. Maybe you're a pastor. Listen, all my examples aren't for you guys. Like maybe you're a, a pastor or an aspiring minister of God's word and you're listening to this podcast or or maybe you're even saying these words right now oh my soul and you are hanging your affections on just the the visible fruit the attendance in your church the the things that your church is doing that that call for other people's praise of your ministry do you realize oh my soul that you are prone to worshiping a god made with hands that is not a god the false god of success as the world sees it and the gospel comes like a freight train to disrupt and confront our idols and to make us satisfied in Jesus alone. Well, let's finish it up. Verse 28. When they heard this, they were enraged and were crying out, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. So the city was filled with confusion, and they rushed together into the theater, dragging with them Gaius and Aristarchus, Macedonians who were Paul's companions in travel. But when Paul wished to go in among the crowd, the disciples would not let him. And even some of the Asiarchs, these are respected city officials that Paul was witnessing to and actually became friends of his. Even some of the Asiarchs, who were friends of his, sent to him and were urging him not to venture into the theater. Verse 32, now some cried out one thing, some another, for the assembly was in confusion And most of them did not know why they had come together. What a sad and confusing scene. Some of the crowd, verse 33, prompted Alexander, whom the Jews had put forward. And Alexander, motioning with his hand, wanted to make a defense to the crowd. So what's going on here is that this city of Ephesus, many of them didn't really even know the difference between Jews and Christians and what that the Christians believed the gospel in Jesus, and so they were just sort of lumping them all together. And the Jews were particularly sensitive to any sort of civil unrest because they knew that it would probably be blamed on them, and that Rome then, hearing about civil unrest in Ephesus, would come and accuse the Jews. And so the Jews are putting forward this man named Alexander, who was one of their leaders, to hopefully quell the riot 
that has come and many of these people are riding and they don't even know why. The, the city is just in confusion and everybody's just wandering around like chickens with their head cut off. All a result, all as a result of the gospel that has come to disrupt and confront this city. It's just caused them in, to be in tumult. So Alexander, motioning with his hand, wanted to make a defense to the crowd. But when they recognized that he was a Jew, for about two hours they all cried out and with one voice said, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Verse 35, and when the town clerk, and the town clerk was sort of like the city manager or mayor, he was probably the highest ranking civil authority in the city, came and quieted the crowd. He said, men of Ephesus, who is there who does not know that the city of, of the Ephesians is temple keeper of the great Artemis and of the sacred stone that fell from the sky. We're not sure exactly what that is. It was probably obviously some meteorite that this false religion that was being practiced at Ephesus, then they took it as a sign to sort of confirm their worship of this false goddess. Verse 36, seeing then that these things cannot be denied, what he's talking about here is the false religion that they worship. Seeing then that these things cannot be done. I mean, I just see so many elements of this in our culture, like just the, the evolutionary humanist mindset. Well, clearly it this, it's this way. How ridiculous of you Christians to believe this. I mean, we still see this today, don't we? I mean, this, this, this false message is still being preached by culture today. Seeing then that these things cannot be denied, you ought to be quiet and do nothing rash. He's talking to the crowd of the Ephesians. He's saying, calm down. For you have brought these men here who are neither sacrilegious nor blasphemers of our goddess. Paul wasn't speaking distinctly against Diana, Artemis. He was just lifting up Jesus. And this is the effect that it was having. If therefore Demetrius and the craftsmen, verse 38, with him, have a complaint against anyone, the courts are open and there are pro-councils. Let them bring charges against one another. Verse 39, but if you seek anything further, it shall be settled in the regular assembly. Verse 40, for we really are in danger of being charged with rioting today since there is no cause that we can give to justify this communion. So, so this town clerk, this native Ephesian, has many of the same concerns that the Jewish people had as they put forth Alexander. He is afraid as the sort of city manager this city manager of Ephesus, that if the authorities in Rome hear about what's going on in the city that he's supposed to be in charge of, that the Roman authorities will come and smash them because Romans, the Roman authorities did not like civil unrest. And so he's trying, God's using him really, this unbelieving t- city clerk, God's using him to be the means by which he preserves Paul and pacifies the crowd and allows Paul to get out of there unharmed at this particular point in his life. Verse 41, and when he had said these things, he dismissed the assembly. So point number four, which in many ways is a sort of summary of this chapter and a summary of what we want to say as we look at the gospel and its effect it should have on us as a church in these coming weeks is that point number four, the gospel should produce gospel culture. So when we as a church stand on it and we don't try and adorn it with mixing it in with the world around us, as it is clarified among us as we make this a safe place to repent and be honest with one another and to care for one another so that Jesus and his holiness would be clarified and as we realize that the gospel comes to smash our idols and confront us and not be like a rabbit's foot but a freight train that 
overwhelms us with the beauty and sufficiency of Christ, then that necessarily should produce a fruit in us. And we don't necessarily see the positive fruit in Ephesus in Acts chapter 19, but later on, Paul will write a letter to this church known as the letter of Ephesians, which is one of the most beautiful and important letters in the whole New Testament. And this is what Paul says about this church that was established in Ephesus because of Paul's ministry and all of this that happened in this scene in Acts chapter 19. Listen to Ephesians 1, verse 15 through 17. Paul says, now writing back to the church at Ephesus years later after it's gathered as a result of Paul's ministry there, for this reason, he says in Ephesians 1, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. So now, retroactively, through Paul's letter to the Ephesians, we can see the effect that the gospel had on this culture. It produced, it produced a culture in this church of love, worship of Jesus, and that Lifting up of the gospel, Christians being encouraged, unbelievers coming to faith, and God being glorified. Oh, that Crosspoint would be a place where gospel truth produces gospel culture. Christians that are humble and servant hearted and gracious. Unbelievers that sense a place where the aroma of the only true joy that will satisfy Christ is there for them to partake of. Where it's a place that it is, it is okay to not be okay, but it's not okay to stay not okay. Where we can come and safely let down our religious fig leaves and turn from our false idols and worship Jesus who alone will satisfy. Where it's not legalism, but it's grace. Where it's not some sort of stifling religious culture, but it's joy and sufficiency. Where generations commend the works of God to another. Where older serve younger and younger honor older. Where young men treat young women as sisters and not as sex objects. And where men are leaders and courageous and where they lay down their lives for the sake of women and children. And where women joyfully follow the leadership of their husbands. And where this is a place where the gospel takes root, where Jesus is enough and we don't have to dress it up with silly little accoutrements. And where God puts a root of his gospel and it bears fruit for the world to come and taste, to take a bite of the gospel fruit that grows in this church, in this place, and that they would taste and see that he is good and that he is the Lord and that God would then send people out of this place to take the gospel to corners of our city and corners of this world that are dark and are caught up in the very same idolatry that we ourselves were caught up in before Jesus confronted our sinful hearts and that the, the, the idols that this, this city is, is caught up in Acts chapter 19 and Jesus and his beauty would be extolled. Oh, that we would be this type of place. Let's pray.
Oh, Father, I pray that you would do these things in and through us. You have been doing these things. And we pray that we would see this and be encouraged by it and that you would do even more. That we as a church would be so satisfied in the sufficiency of Jesus that the truth of the gospel would burn brightly and be clarified here. That this would be a place where the beautiful truth of Christ would confront and smash idols and that you would produce in this place a beautiful gospel culture that unbelievers that are in this room even right now would turn from trusting in themselves and trust in Jesus alone that you would save and satisfy their restless hearts. That you would do the same for Christians in this room, that we would reorient our affections afresh at the beginning of this year. And that we would be satisfied in Jesus. by your kind grace that you would do beautiful things over the decades here for the glory of your name and for our joy. I pray these things in the name of the only one who is worthy, Jesus.